We welcome you out to our final night of the gospel meeting, and uh, we're so happy that you're here, and we're so happy for uh, Brother Todd and his family to be here. I, know, I kind of remembered uh, as I was preparing for tonight that I really haven't uh, really introduced uh, his family uh, as well, but I know a lot of you got to spend time to, with them and meet them, but we're thankful that uh, Todd is here. And a lot of times, uh, you know, at gospel meetings, a preacher might not bring his family, but we're appreciative that, that Todd did, and we Get to know Amanda uh, better and their, their children, Casper and Hattie Jo, and Joy and uh, Everett. And so I know a lot of the kids have been uh, playing with them and our kids are definitely going to miss them when they leave. The, <laughs> they've already been asking when's the next time Todd can come back to preach another gospel meeting here. And so uh, we're appreciative uh, of the family there and hopefully you've all had a chance to get to meet them this week. But um, uh, again, we're, we're th- thankful for that. And so, again, this is uh, the last night of this meeting, and we're thankful for the messages that we have been receiving out of Ephesians, uh, chapter 4 in particular. And so, uh, really, Todd's going to bring us the final message here, and, um, and I'll turn it over to him at this time. Thank you again, Michael, for those kind words, and thank you to all of you for your kindness to us, and uh, so thankful that my family can come with me, and and uh, I figure as long as I have my wife and the children, there's always a good chance that I'll get to come back, whether uh, it's for me to come back or them. She's been getting me in places I couldn't go on my own for years now, so um, I'll just lean into that and, and uh, be thankful for it. But uh, you've been so good to us. It's been a, a fantastic week for us. Hopefully, uh, you have grown grown from these things as I have. And uh, we're going to do a quick review on where we've been here as, as we get started on this. And then we're going to bring this home to ourselves, looking inwardly. Uh, first, I have to address something. Last night, I didn't get the official count, but I think we had 201. Um, now that may be the preacher's count. I, I 205, okay, and that's for West. And those that may not know what I'm talking about, he he made a he made a promise uh, on Monday. Uh, he didn't get the count. Uh, okay, well maybe he won't have to shave his head and eyebrows. But um, anyway, it is so good to be here with you. It's amazing how quickly life gets away from us, and that's why it is so important that we use that time as we ought to. And, you know, we live in a world filled with distractions. I mean, I can get derailed in, in, in wholesome things, okay? I'm not even talking about the, the trash that's out there in the world to, to allure us if we're not careful. I'm talking about pure and wholesome things in and of themselves that can just distract us from the things that matter most, we can give up the great for things that are, that are good in themselves. The greatest thing we can do as God's people, as we've seen this week, is be about the business that He's given us. And so let's, t- let's talk for just a moment about where we've been, and then we'll dive into this evening's lesson. This week we've considered a wide range of matters that pertain to the Lord's church because we have seen the value that God placed upon her. That was the beginning point. We have to understand and see the church as He sees the church. This is no mere human organization. It is uh, no filler until He can come back and do what He set out to do the first time. He did not fail to set up that kingdom. 
that was told by Daniel so long before he came and set it up. No, indeed, he did set it up. And the rule, the reign of God, the kingdom of God is here alive and well today. You are evidence of that rule as you allow Him to rule in your hearts through faith. Uh, faith in His Word. And so we saw the immense value of the church, the lofty purpose of the church. Edification, benevolence, and evangelism. Uh, some very basic things, but everything that we do as the Lord's body uh, overall, the, the church universal, and every individual congregation this is what we're aiming for, and, and by extension, every individual. We've seen the provision that God made for the achievement of those goals, and last night we looked at our individual responsibilities. I hope that if you took nothing else away from last evening, you know that your role is significant in this congregation. Or if you're here visiting whatever congregation of which you are a part you have a significant role to play for the Lord. There are no unnecessary parts of the body of Christ. And so, with all of that in view this evening, we are going to conclude this series with a call for introspection, for self-reflection, to put it another way. And, you know, this is a, this is a difficult thing to do sometimes. Uh, it is often more difficult to see our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings than it is to see those of others. And the Scriptures have a lot to say about that issue. You know, I, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Um, you see the irony in that statement, right? The, I'll never forget the first time I heard somebody say that. I was like, it took me a moment to sort out exactly what he was talking about. He was putting on display, he was giving me an illustration of how foolish it is to think that I've got everything as it ought to be, that there's nothing left for me to work on. James Meadows was one of my uh, teachers in preaching school. I'm so thankful I got to be there before he hung it up. He would tell us often, if you think you have arrived, you have. And by that, what he meant was, if you think you have come as far as you need to, you have come as far as you can. You will not go any farther than that, but you may have farther that you need to go based on what the Lord would have us to do. As a matter of fact, I would argue that that growth and maturation process is a lifetime affair. Never in our lives do we completely arrive, not until He calls us home. But the Lord has given us several appeals despite the difficulty. Much of Christianity is difficult, isn't it? Love your enemies. Is that an easy one for you? How many of you just get warm fuzzies when you think about those people that are, that are out to get you, those that are against you? Do we pray for our enemies like He told us to do on multiple occasions? Uh, what about those who would mistreat us? Are we going to go out of our way to extend kindness? You know, I, I look out at all of you and, I, and the way that you've, you've treated us here this week and, and in the past when we've been up this way, um, it's easy to be good to folks like you. It's something else to be good to those who would persecute us, isn't it? Yet that's exactly what He's called us to do. That's just one example. There could be many others. And so here we are. Our theme for the week comes from Ephesians chapter 4, and particularly verse 13 after describing those gifts that He gave and the purpose in giving them, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's what we're reaching for, well, every day. Is, it, is that not the case? Isn't that the essence of the Christian life? Continual growth in that direction. But before we discuss the need for self-examination and a proper self-image where we are able to understand ourselves as we truly are, knowing our strengths and wanting to build upon those, knowing our weaknesses and wanting to shore those things up, we need to make sure that we're using the right standard of measure. You know, we have an entire bureau uh, that is dedicated to uh, weights and measures and making sure that everything meets certain standards. That way you're not out here, um, you know, getting cheated in, in uh, purchases that you make or, or other transactions, whatever the case may be. There are folks who oversee that. You have to have the right measure or things aren't going to turn out as they need to, to turn out. And so those gifts that we looked at that Christ gave to the church to equip the saints, there's a very specific end in view. Now, I'm not going to go back through all of this, but I do want to reiterate a little bit of what we talked about last evening. And we've really been talking about it all week, but we hit on it more last night. The first of those things being unity of the faith. You go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and, and before we get to this section that we've been dealing with, in verse 3, he calls on them... And has them, he would have them to be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This was something that he had already established. It is ours to keep it, ours to defend it. And there's some, some matters of attitude and action uh, and some things that need to be known there in order to do that. But all of this comes around to the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, If I know Him, not just know about Him, there are lots of folks who have a lot of head knowledge about uh, God, about the Bible. Uh, you've probably, many of you, heard of a man named Charles Manson. Anybody ever heard of him before? Um, not a, a picture of godliness by any stretch, but you know what Charles Manson could do really well? He could quote Scripture. You know who else could quote Scripture? Satan. He could quote Scripture. Okay, and so the point in that is they might know a lot of things about God. The demons, they knew the Christ before men knew the Christ. They knew who Jesus was before the apostles knew who Jesus was. But did they know Him? No, these are, this is a different thing. The knowledge of the Son of God. Now it comes from knowing the things He would have us to know but as we examine him, you know, I think about the reaction. Let's turn back to Isaiah 53 for just a moment here. And notice the conclusion of, as it's drawing to the conclusion. This is the passage about the suffering servant speaking of the Christ and the things he endured in order to redeem God's people to himself, to atone for their sins. And after describing the agony, I mean, it's awful. I often read this passage while taking the Lord's Supper to keep my mind where it belongs. It's awfully hard to think about that silly ball game that's going to happen after church. It can matter after church if you want it to. That's all fine and good. I don't have anything against a ball game, but it sure has no place when I'm trying to take the Lord's Supper. Neither does that uh, family gathering that I've got going on. That's all fine and good. That's great stuff. But it doesn't matter 
in that moment when I'm supposed to remember what my Lord's done for me. These are all matters that we can, we can relate to and, and know we have to, have to focus in on. But in Isaiah 53, verse 11, notice what he says, pertaining to the knowledge of our Lord, He shall see the labor of His soul and be satisfied. By His knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. The knowledge of the Son of God. What about John chapter 17, verse 3? This here is Jesus' high priestly prayer. As He was preparing, He's just gotten done with a really lengthy discourse with the uh, with the twelve, explaining to them the things that were about to happen, getting them ready for Him to be absent in the body, making sure that they knew what was about to follow, so that they would be encouraged and could be renewed when the time came, when He sent back the Spirit to flesh out the rest of, of His will. In verse 3 of John 17, after He has, um, has, has laid bare that He was to give eternal life to as many as the Father had given Him. Verse 2, He said, And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know God the Father and Jesus the Christ. And we could continue, but you get the picture here. If you look in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, particularly time and time again there, as Peter is addressing those that he says have like precious faith with us, the us there, um, I take to be Peter and the others who had ushered in um, this age at the behest of the Lord. He said those who have like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you, notice how, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice again the agency of all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. And so the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, those things run hand in hand. We cannot have unity of faith in the absence of the knowledge of the Son of God. And more than just being able to quote what it says, we have to know and embrace what it means and what it's supposed to do. Now, back to Ephesians chapter 4. Where are we headed? The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man is what the New King James and the King James have. The English Standard Version has mature manhood. Some have taken that word perfect man and said, well, I mean, of course that's impossible. None of us is perfect. Best Christian you've ever known is imperfect. Best Christian you will ever know is imperfect and will be imperfect. It is only by God's grace and, and our walking in His light that we are perfected in Him. But ultimately, all of us is imperfect. So mature manhood, that, that grasps us pretty well. The American Standard Version of 1901 says a full-grown man. The word underneath that is teleos. Okay? And it means to be brought to completion. There is a design if you uh, get into Christian evidences at all, and that's something, by the way, we need to get into more because it used to be that we were having a lot of discussions about what the, what the Bible meant and what we were supposed to do with that. And we can still do that, but if you go out and you spend much time in the community at large, and, and anymore it doesn't matter much what community you're talking about, you're going to find that you may be better served to start with, is there a God? 
And why should I believe that there is a God? And why should I believe that there was a Jesus the Christ? Why should I believe that the Bible is indeed from God? Um, that's probably where we're going to have to head more and more because there is more and more skepticism in the world. And so before we can talk about what the Bible means, we have to establish that it is the Word of God. But one of the arguments that's used in that is called the teleological argument. Now, it's a big 50 cent. That might be a 75 cent word, right? You've heard of 50 cent words. That one might be worth 75 cents. Basically, all it means, it comes from this particular word. It's an argument from design. And it says if something shows evidence of design, it must have a designer. Okay? And so simply, simply put, the world we live in shows sophisticated evidence of design. The bodies we inhabit are phenomenal when you look at the, the uh, inner, inner workings of how our bodies uh, support themselves and, and continue. It's amazing. That's what this means. There was a design. There's an intended purpose to Laos. It is brought to the completion of its intended purpose fully accomplished or fully developed. And so you see the cause for this. Let's turn over to Colossians 1, verse 28. And I, I'm skipping over that passage there in Matthew 5 because we looked at it last night. And it's that call for us to be like, like our Father, to be perfect as He is perfect, fully formed, brought to completion. That is fit for the purpose that we are to serve. In Colossians 1, verse 28, Paul spoke of them preaching the Christ. He said, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom to this end. This is the design. That we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. This is the reason. Now while we're in Colossians, let's just turn over to chapter 4, verse 12. And here as he's drawing the letter to a close, he speaks of a man, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ. He greets you, he says, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You see, this is the design. God has a specific purpose for His pe people. We've talked a little bit about that this week. There's so much more that could be said but we're aiming to measure up, to be mature, fully formed in those purposes. All right. So the measure, that term that is used there, we are familiar with the metric system, right? The metric system is derived, the term metric is derived ultimately from the same uh, root as this term here. The word underneath this is metron. It means a measuring rod, hence the rule look on this background up here. A tape measure, if you will. It's a rule or a standard of judgment of the required due or fit measure of anything. Okay, so you go back and you say we have this design that we're building towards and now we have a means by which we can measure whatever it is to see if it fits if it is fully formed. And so the stature that we're talking about here comes back to that idea of maturity, the adult age, maturity, or metaphorically of an attained state fit for a thing. So when you became a child of God, you started off on this path. And you know, every one of us starts off as a babe in Christ, First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. And so 
we start out and we're, we're desiring the sincere milk of the Word as Peter would have us, that we may grow thereby. But over time, what happens? Just like a, just like a baby. We have some, some kids here with us this week and uh, they once just drank milk and that's how they were sustained. And then after a little time, we started to sprinkle in a little bit more solids and then more solid than that until now it's all we can do to satisfy their hunger for all those things. They've grown. Their needs have changed and their abilities have, have grown with that. That's what we're supposed to do until we measure up to the stature of the fullness, that which is filled or that which fills something, bringing it to its intended ends. Alright, so what do we do with this? We have a measure. We have a standard by which we can look at ourselves and say, okay, where am I in this? I, and none of us can say I've arrived, not this side of eternity. It's always going to be when we arrive there, if we've been faithful to the end, He's going to complete what's lacking in us. We will be changed. don't know what that looks like. Anybody that claims to hasn't read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, where He talks about the, the love. He says, Behold the love of God that He has shed upon us. He said uh, that He calls us children, that we should be called sons or children of God. And then he goes on to describe how we are those things and the world doesn't know us. The world doesn't understand God's people because He's called us to be something different. And then he describes the reality of what it will look like when He comes back. He says, we do not yet know what we will be, but we know that we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So ultimately, in the, in the time in between the, now and then, our spiritual fullness, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and how we measure up to that uh, is it's commensurate with our consumption and assimilation of Christ into our hearts and minds. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Here as he's describing uh, his, his prayer for them, verse 14, I, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ with Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness is not of ourselves. Paul talked about that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and he made it abundantly clear that they weren't full on their own. It was the fullness of Christ in them. And that comes only from engaging His will and embracing His ways. And inasmuch as we do that, we will continue to grow up into Him. Just as Paul is praying for them in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 and describing that process. But in Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, this is just a call to come back always to the head so that we may grow up in all things into Him. For in Him, Paul says, Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete. There's our word again, to laos. You are fit for the purpose God has given you in Him, who is the head of all principality 
and power. And so this grow, this occurs as we grow up into Him. Now, I mentioned last night 2 Corinthians 3.18 particularly. And I, I want to go back there for just a moment. For those that uh, I know we have some who were not with us last night, but Paul there in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is discussing uh, what happens ultimately as we uh, behold the glory of the Lord. And he was, he was contrasting it with those who were still clinging to Moses' law after the time it had been nailed to the cross. It had been taken out of the way. It served its purpose. Christ replaced it with the new covenant in His blood, fulfilled it, took it out of the way. But some were still holding on to it. And he was talking about the veil that lies over their faces. You ever look through uh, something like a veil material? It's, you can see things, but it's blurry, right? Try to look through your, your drapes on your uh, windows or something. The shears, I guess I should say. And ultimately, you can see out there and make something out of it, but it's not clear. And so here in verse 18, though, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we behold the, the glory of our Lord, we are being transformed. And that word underneath that is the word from which we get our English term metamorphosis. A transformation from one form into another. And so that is the process that we're talking about. We have a measure. Alright, so seeing that we have a clear measuring rod... A rule, we have a goal, we have an aim, a purpose that He's given us. And He's given us all the things that are necessary to be growing in the direction of where we need to go. We ought to know the reality of our spiritual condition. We, we need to take time to look at ourselves and be honest with it. There are various passages of Scripture that highlight the necessity. I want to take you now to Matthew chapter 7. And beginning in verse 1. Now this is a very often abused passage that is used to silence any criticism that somebody might level against uh, someone's behaviors. Someone is involved in sin. They know they're involved in sin. And a brother or sister comes to them and tries to convince them to give it up. And almost the entire world knows Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, right? Judge not lest you be judged the same. If you condemn me, you're going to be condemned yourself. Well, I'm not in the condemning business. I don't uh, have control over your eternal destiny, but I do have a responsibility to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, right? Um, we are to look out for one another, but that's not what he's talking about here in and of itself. In John 7, 24, he says, Judge not according to appearances, but rather judge righteous judgment. What's he talking about? Look at things properly and determine what is right and what is wrong. But here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus demands not that we overlook sin and leave it in place and just let someone wander off into it, but rather that we fix ourselves before we go try to fix someone else. And the picture that he describes here is one where somebody has a much bigger issue of their own and they're trying to help somebody else overcome a much smaller issue. It's an issue of blindness to one's own condition he says for with that what judgment you judge you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured back to you and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye you see the image 
And literally a beam sticking out of your eyeball over here. You can't see that. But you notice this little speck in your brother's eye. And you say, let me help you get that out of there. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. So what he's dealing with here is hypocrisy and blindness to one's own condition. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what's he saying? Clean up your own backyard before you go and knock on your neighbor's door. But there was an issue here. These folks were having a hard time seeing themselves. Now, I have a struggle with this myself. I don't know about you, but my eyes face that way. Anybody else have that same issue? Which way do your eyes point? They point at the other person, right? So it's so much easier for me to see you as you appear to me than it is for me to see myself. So I have to get my mirror out. James talks about uh, the mirror. Uh, Paul was talking about it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, looking as in a mirror. But in James chapter 1, I think this is worth noting, he describes here in James chapter 1, those who are hearers only and deceive themselves. In James 1.23, he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. This word acts as my spiritual mirror. I can look at what God expects of me and I can measure or test myself against it and see where I need to correct some things. But we'll see in a moment it takes a certain mindset. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine themselves to see whether or not they were in the faith. Test yourselves, he said. And so we have to take this measure that we've looked at already and we have to lay our life out beside it. And we have to be real with ourselves. Okay? Be honest with ourselves. We'll look at that in a moment. And examine what is actually there. Furthermore, Paul told the Corinthians as well as the Galatians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, in talking about the project of, of building the temple. He, he describes the, the church in verse 16 as the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. But back here in verse 10, he starts to, begin, he starts to speak about how according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he describes uh, how if they build with these certain materials, then ultimately their work was going to become clear. Verse 13, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. He's calling on them to pay attention to how they're building. I mentioned before in one of the images that we looked at of the church, the household of God, the house of God, it's a building project that is ongoing. The body is something that is still being built up. And it's up to us to look at how it is that we're going about these things. Galatians 6, 4 and 5. He made it clear there to the Galatians that they needed to take heed to how they were conducting their business 
And he says, let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. I'm going to have to give an account for how I go about these things, so I need to look internally and, and see what is truly happening in my life. What is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in me? Okay, so I have to turn my vision back inwardly. Now this list could go on, but I think this is, is sufficient to demonstrate the necessity that is laid upon us to examine ourselves. Now, let's look at where I think it probably gets the most difficult. Okay, back to one of my uh, earliest statements in this lesson. I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. You ever known anybody that lived like they really... Thought they were wrong once, but they were mistaken. It turns out I wasn't wrong after all. You ever known anybody that's right every single step of the way? They've never stumbled. They've never had a, a plank in their eye. No, no. They just go about the business of pulling the specks out of everyone else's eyes. The calls to self-examination are impossible to keep if I don't appraise myself properly. If I don't have my ego in check, if I don't have my self-esteem in the proper balance, okay, and we, we're going to have to see that um, this is a balancing act, okay, because there's a ditch on either side of the road here, and we need to stay out of both of these ditches, but the Bible's filled with calls not to overestimate ourselves. I want to give you Romans chapter 12, verse 3, and I want to remind everyone again, uh, these lessons are available to anybody that wants them. PowerPoints are here on this computer already. Uh, I'll be happy to uh, send out the, the outlines if you would like to have them. So you'll have all of this material in your hands if you want it. Just let me know or let Michael know, and we will uh, we'll be sure and get that to you. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. In verses 1 and 2, he talks about a life that is given to the service of God, okay? And a transformation that's taking place here. Um, and then he says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Sober self-reflection. A clear picture of myself. Let's go back through in the Proverbs here and just look at a few things. Uh, that passage there at the last of that in James chapter 4 is one I'm sure most are pretty familiar with. It is a call um, to, to be humble, to humble ourselves because God resists the proud and He exalts the humble. I want you to notice a few things here as we go through the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17. And this is in that passage about the six things the Lord hates. Verse 16 He gives us, Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. Notice the first in the list. A proud look. Proud look. Now we're in company with um, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, false witness, those who sow discord among brethren. But the first one is a proud look. You think he wants us to notice something here. What about Proverbs 8 and verse 13? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 15, verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before 
a fall. Now there are more that we could look at and, and we could pull more and more, but I think it's pretty plain when I look at those Proverbs and I look at the call in James 4, verse 6, and, and all of what we have here, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that when it comes down to our self-reflection, when we come to this measuring rod and, and we are laying our life out beside it, that there's a danger that we might deceive ourselves, that we might have a plank stuck out of our eye and not be able to see it. And so this is a danger to us all. Satan is really good at lying to us. And, and I've said this before, though. He's not as good at it as I am at lying to myself. You ever done something and, and just talked yourself right into believing it was okay when you knew it wasn't? Or talked yourself out of doing something you know the Lord wanted you to do and, and found a way to make it okay that you didn't do that thing? I've done it. I'm this, I'll be the first to confess this evening that these have been struggles I've had to deal with in my life. And I have to watch myself to this very day. So we, we have to be on our guard that we don't think too highly of ourselves, but also we can't think too lowly of ourselves either. After all, the Son of God did die for you. And He did die for me, so don't degrade yourself either. I mean, the calls to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, that's the first time I found that phrase in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22.37-40. The, the greatest commandments there, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second's likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. How good can you be at loving your neighbor if you don't love yourself properly? So it, it tells me that I need to think well of myself, just not too well of myself. I just need to make sure that I can see myself clearly as I really am. And the Scriptures are the key because they won't lie to you. Satan will. Friends often will. Family will. And the Lord will not. And that's probably why more people run from Him than run to Him, don't you think? Why do you suppose people do backflips to deny their inherent value which is established in the Scriptures, being created in the image of God? Why would somebody want to be instead the descendant of some ape-like creature with no inherent value? Because they want to live like a descendant of some ape-like creature. We're better than that. They're better than that too. Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It begins with properly loving ourselves. That's why we would come to Him, turn to Him, and do what He would have us to do. The answer, the solution to either of these extremes is to see ourselves as God sees us. Go back to Genesis 1, 26-28 sometime. Spence, I don't know how much time you spend in that book. Genesis is a powerful book though. As it lets us know where we came from while we're here, but God created us in His image. You are a human being created in the image of God. That's as much as I need to know to love you to truly care about your best interests. Okay? And I should reply that to myself just the same. The psalmist in Psalms 8, beginning in 
Verse 3 there, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? And then he goes on to say, Yet you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Gave him dominion over all of the creation. So I would turn your attention here to Hebrews 4, 11 and 12. Once again, back to the Scriptures. This is why we press the Scriptures so hard. A lot of folks... You ever, you ever heard the phrase bibliolatry? Anybody ever heard of that? That's an accusation that's actually leveled against us because we point everything back to the Scriptures and they say, well, you're worshiping the Bible. <laughs> that's a clever way to get at somebody, isn't it? No, I'm worshiping the God of the Bible and the only reason I know about Him is because of the Bible. The only reason I know what He wants me to do is because of the Bible. So I revere the Word because it comes from Him. But in Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So the point in that is, if you need to know what you truly look like, how you measure up, turn to the Scriptures. They will never lie to you. They will show you your strengths and your weaknesses and the path forward to build on those strengths and to work to eliminate those weaknesses. It's the only way. But beware, it will pierce to the dividing even of the soul and spirit. It will cut you to the depths, but that is what is necessary if we are to grow. Thankfully, in all of this, God has given us, as we saw earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, here's the hard part. You ever pray for wisdom from God? I hope you do. You ought to. James chapter 1, verse 5, he, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. Okay, and, and he, will, he will give you the wisdom that you need to navigate this life. But a lot of times I think when we, when we say those things in prayer, what we're actually hoping for, it's kind of like last night I was talking about me praying for patience and hoping God would just infuse it into me, right? But that's not how patience comes. Patience comes by dealing with adversity. And I just have to have some hard times and learn how to handle those hard times better. There's no magical method of gaining the wisdom that is necessary to see ourselves as we are and know what we need to do. So the only thing we can do is roll up our sleeves and get to the work of studying, engaging it, praying about it, engaging one another, engaging the world around us, giving us those opportunities. I want you to think about something here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. When he told Timothy to study or be diligent to present himself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth or handling a right, properly handling the word of truth. He was speaking to someone. You go back earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and you find that he was given a gift by the laying on of the Apostle Paul's hands. It seems that Timothy had some of that inspiration that was given by the laying on of the Apostle's hands. Yet a man with that inspiration, that close to the time of the events with the Apostle Paul himself as his mentor, was to study or be diligent. How much more do I, a man nearly 2,000 years removed from that time, without the benefit of an Apostle to lay his hands on me and grant to me that miraculous 
ability to, to gain the knowledge of God's will, how much more do I need to be diligent? And so here's the challenge from, from all of this. The church of which you are a part, assuming you are a part of it, we're going to talk about if you're not here in just a moment. But if you're a part of the Lord's church, you are a part of the greatest institution that has ever been put on this earth. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. And this temple is greater than the temple that Solomon had. The relationship that we have with God is greater than the relationship that they had through Moses, through Aaron, and through Aaron's descendants all the way through. The book of Hebrews is all about better, 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 better. Better things in and because of Jesus the Christ. This is valuable beyond measure. We have responsibilities because of that. Leadership has a responsibility. That responsibility is to build up the membership, each and every individual, that every joint may supply what it's supposed to, so that when every part does its share, the body builds itself up in love. We saw that last night. But here's the thing. I cannot do my share unless I am honestly every day examining myself to see where I am in my pursuit of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what this entire week has been about. And that's what every day of our lives, if we are honest with ourselves, is truly about. Now this evening, if you're not a child of God, if you haven't come on the basis of your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, turned and repented of your sins, as Peter told those people on on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, to repent, turn away from those things. If you've not confessed Christ before men, own His name so He can own yours. We remind you, you get a much better deal out of that than He does. When He owns your name, you gain far more by owning His than He does by owning yours. That's true of every one of us. And be buried with Him through baptism into His death, raised by the power of the Father, to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. If you've not done that this evening, then you haven't even begun to come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and all of the blessings that come with that. Let me urge you to do that if you know that's what you need to do. If you don't know what that means, I'm sure I'll, I'll be happy to open this book and share study with you. And I'm sure that many others right here in this room would be happy to do the same. Maybe you've done that. And you look and you know, if you take out that measuring rod and you put your life up next to it, that it's not what it needs to be and that you're not making the efforts to make it what it needs to be. Won't you come home? Won't you get back involved in that and grow towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? We're going to give you the opportunity right now as together we stand and as we sing.